Hi, this is the Peterborough Occurrence Podcast. My name is Aisha Barmania. Last August, the noted Canadian composer R. Murray Schaefer passed away after a long battle with Alzheimer's disease. He was a prolific composer and artist known internationally for his compositions, books, and projects involving sound in the environment. He passed away at age 88 at his home near Peterborough. Schaefer's work has inspired and influenced many in the Canadian arts. It's hard to overstate his impact on the fields of sound ecology and experimental composition broadly, but he's also had a deep and long lasting impact on the local Peterborough arts community. And we can trace that impact back to a 1988 production called The Greatest Show. It was a site-specific production that took over Del Crary Park in downtown Peterborough. And many subsequent local performances have drawn inspiration from this piece. Schaefer's recent passing prompted us at Peterborough Currents to revisit The Greatest Show and to start asking some questions about why it's resonated with so many artists for so long. L.A. Alfonso is here with me today, and he's put together this report by talking to a few artists from the production who still live in the area. He spoke to set designers Gerard and Diana Smith, theater director B. Quarry, public energy performing arts executive director Bill Kimball, Fourth Line Theater founder Rob Winslow, and local music legend Hank Fisher, aka Washboard Hank. Thanks for putting this all together, LA. I'm excited to hear it. Thank you for having me. I think uh, this is a really important story. I think Peterborough still feels the impact that our Murray Schaefer left behind in the city uh, because we have this penchant for site-specific performances, events like Alley Waltz, Fourth Line Theater, airing at King George. And uh, Bill Kimball has been a big part of that and part of the art scene here in Peterborough. Bill Kimball at the time was working for ArtSpace. I was involved in in um, in the local scene uh, as an organizer. And when Murray Schaefer um, came to Peterborough, he, he, he was looking for a place to produce his, his work. And um, he, he, he came to town and, and, and did find a receptive uh, crowd. Uh, so I, I got involved in, 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 in helping figure out how to pull this thing together. And this thing was the greatest show on earth. And that's how he put it to us. I just want to interrupt here for a second and note that they did have to drop on earth in the title because they got a letter from the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus to stop using that title. Yeah, I ended up um, acting in that uh, in in the piece. Uh, I mean, they, they needed a lot of actors. And, you know, the whole range of amateur to professional was there. I, I was the uh, Barker outside a kissing booth. For if you step behind the screen and kiss the little lady that's in there, she'll put something in your pocket or in your hand or wherever you collect your collectibles. Now, ain't that a change? Yes, sir. You step in there and that firecracker of a woman will give you a treat you ain't expecting. Peterborough's art scene has um, developed a, a kind of an almost underground reputation in the in the world out there it's not it's not a household name or anything but it's it's um it's known in in the uh in the sort of the corridors of of art power you know the canada council for the arts and places like that that um peter has this um offbeat kind of um by the seat of your pants diy art scene and um and that was one of the reasons was 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 playing host to a show like that, you know. The eyes of Ariadne. 
Washboard Hank was one of the the stars of the from the from the Peterborough community. My my role was uh, Aberanthanath Lemuel. I was a defrocked Presbyterian minister, and uh, I had this uh, one man band that I put together for the show. When I tried out for the part, I went in with my washboard and my kitchen sink tuba, and I played. And uh, Murray was there, sort of squinting at me, and uh, he totally got it. Totally got it. And I, I tell you, uh, having somebody look at my washboard and consider it a marvelous piece of musical instrument <laughs> by somebody of his stature was really, really just blew me away. And so uh, I got the part. One part there was uh, farting noises, and so I had two whoopee cushions and one in either pocket of my of my suit jacket with uh, the tails coming out holes in the pockets, and I would fart, fart the farts, and uh, a whole page of a whole page of script I had to do. And so did Mr. Schaefer direct you to do the farts? Oh yes, oh yes, must have farts, must have farts. So Gerard and Diana Smith, husband and wife set designers, describe the events in their own words. And the overarching theme of the piece is chaos, uh, in that you have to destroy something in order to rebuild it. So the greatest show is the process of destroying everything. It makes fun of everything. It sends up everything. Uh, the audience would arrive, as they would for uh, any kind of show, as the audience arrives, all the performers are putting on their makeup, chatting with the audience, and it's very Brechtian in that uh, the background is always there and visible. Um, and when the audience has arrived, everyone is called to the main stage for an introduction. The hero is put in a cage and made to disappear, and the heroine is chopped up into pieces by magicians. The audience is free to just wander around and engage with any of the up to 100 acts that uh, exist in the fairground. So we had a main stage show and uh, booths, things like throw the, toss the rings on the bottle and, you know, games of chance. And we had several tents that uh, had different acts in them. And you had to win at one of the games in order to get a ticket to the tent, a tent. And depending on what ticket you got, you got to see certain parts of the show and not other parts. Oh, and there are wandering performers, too, yeah. who engage the audience from time to time. Right. Washboard Hank and Diana Smith remember a very memorable part of the show, Ariadne's singing head. Ariadne's head had been chopped off, but she could still sing. And so she's there, and I guess her tongue had been cut out. And uh, somebody was run, running around with uh, a tongue in a box, and the box had a hole in it, and they would stick their finger up and said, you want to see Ariadne's tongue? And they'd open the box, and they'd wiggle the tongue. Joe Maturolo, the accordionist, had commissioned Murray a few years before to write this piece. And um, so he had had the, the magic table. It's, you know, it's a pretty standard music or magic trick where a table with a hole in it, the, that catches the performer here 
and then there are mirrors set so that you can't see the rest of her body. So she's her head and we got her a long wig to flow out around her and um, made her look dead. And, and Joe had his little costume already with a little top hat and black tux and all that. And uh, she wasn't singing per se as she was vocalizing in a fairly abstract way. And then he'd play the accordion it was a button accordion, so it was going and she's doing strange sounds with her tongue in her mouth and so on. That's 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 creativity. I mean that's it's not garbage, it's creativity. Fourth line theater founder Robert Winslow also took part in the greatest show. And the greatest show was uh, this this large, large performance piece outdoors uh, with a lot of people that were part of the Peterborough scene as well as a lot of people coming in from other places. So it was uh, it was a great it was a great experience in terms of of uh, mixing with your peers, I guess you'd say. I was Sam Galupi, who was like a master of ceremonies, so I kind of and I had a big megaphone. I kind of gathered the people together. Art directors Gerard Smith, Diana Smith, and Robert Winslow described what the Peterborough art scene was like back in 1988. It was kind of very much like the circus comes to town. Now, uh, we, when we were putting it together, Murray and uh, Tom Stoklowski, the director, and Diane and myself, uh, we started looking for suitable small towns because it was modeled on a small town fair, so we didn't want to do it in downtown Toronto. Um, and Peterborough was one of the several uh, locations that we, we chose. And we came and started talking to all kinds of people. We had a big, uh, a big meeting in Peterborough and Art Space and the University, uh, the Theatre Guild, all of the, um, the performing arts people, a lot of musicians, a lot of actors um, came out. And it was such a rich community to begin with that we, uh, we decided that's where we should do it, absolutely. There was, there was so much art, so much theatre, so much music going on in Peterborough at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, we are, we, arrived in town and one of the first things we did was uh oh you have to go to art space and catch the friday night soaps oh yeah uh that robert winslow had organized it was a time personally where there was an awful lot going on creatively in that year in peterborough in terms of theater and this was a um, an improv kind of sitcom situation late night midnight whatever that was hilarious it was incredible. every friday night we were in stitches um and, and it involved a great many of the performers from the greatest show as well as some others but basically yeah they'd all take their costumes and makeup off and head to art space on friday night yeah yeah there was there was a lot going on it's an amazing community we we really we lived there for what 14 years mm -hmm. yeah we loved it there I think the first year uh, we started off with a with a parade from Market Hall, where we were doing costuming. 
uh, actors would get dressed and with full makeup on, would march down Main Street, Peterborough, down Water Street, all the way to Curry Park, and then do the performances and then go back the same way. Of course, the first time we had police escort and everything. And then as we got to know the downtown core of Peterborough, which can be kind of sketchy, uh, we had some groups um, coming together and threatening the actors with some mischief. So I had to hire five people to be bodyguards to walk the actors down. That was local artist and theater director B. Corey. She produced a workshop performance of The Greatest Show in 1987, but did not join the crew the next year. The production had so many obstacles that she admits to being scared away to Toronto afterwards. Here's a fun segment I put together with her stories. There's a character called Dr. Daedalus in the show, and and uh, he, he was in a white lab coat walking around, and he falls over as if he had died at one point at the end of his act. And there was some young people that Alan Ornstein on our dress rehearsal night had invited to come and see the show. And they came from an adult retraining facility. They should not have been there without, you know, someone supervising because they got terrified. They were terrified and they ran home and told their parents that there was this dead guy in the park in a lab coat. He had died and nobody cared. So this was dress rehearsal night. And that night, I had to get up in front of all the press um, and say, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we will not allow children under 12 into the show without proper adult accompaniment. Um, These are our (laughs) parameters. The night before we opened, one of the characters called me at 6 o'clock in the morning and said, B, I can't hold on to these terrible spirits that we've conjured up during the show. I just can't hold on to them anymore. I just, I've tried, I've tried, I've really tried, but it comes out in the cards and I can't hold on. I said, okay, it's six in the morning. You let them just go. Just, just let them go. I went back to bed. Well, we had a mini tornado in downtown Peterborough that grabbed her tent, which was really three uh, oriental carpets, tossed it up in the air and trashed it into the middle of the park. So I think we did some conjuring up. (laughs) We learned our lesson. Out of, I can't remember how many, it ran for maybe a week and probably half the shows were rained out. Um, I can remember spending one night just going around with a broom and, you know, moving the roofs of all the tents so that the water wouldn't pool too badly. Oh, didn't it? It really flooded. The park flooded one night, and, mm. and we we couldn't. I mean, half of the electric stuff was underwater. It was really do not go near the park tonight, kind of thing. So, as with any kind of outdoor performance, it's problematic. But uh, we persevered, and uh, by we, I mean all 150 people. <laughs> and everything was going great until the Minotaur showed up and scared us all away. Check out what they have to say about the giant puppet in the cast. Because this was downtown, what is now Quarry Park, with a big stage. There was no stage back then. It was just uh, greens. And it was the perfect location for this piece because it required, at the end of the show, for a rather huge, articulated jawed, 23-foot-tall puppet to come out of the water and scare the audience away, saying, run for your lives, run for your lives. And that's exactly what had to happen. 
and the Minotaur was this uh, oh, 20 foot high huge horned puppet with lights and, and bombs exploding and, and uh, that would be the end of the show. Basically because of the smoke, uh, you're not seeing the puppeteers very much and they're in black anyway and uh, so yeah, you'd see the head and shoulders of this, this puppet shape and it's more or less a silhouette backlit. Oh, and it made horrifying sounds, too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I can't remember. Oh, David Ramson made the horrible sounds. That's right. start flashing off and on and people look really, really confused and then they're basically all the performers come out and chase them out and then they all they would mill around outside the the perimeter fenced around the uh, fair wondering what the hell just happened and eventually would go home and the audience is standing out on the road scratching their heads what was that <laughs> So I asked everyone, who really did come to the show? Well, I think until that time, um, there were there was very little opportunity for the general public to access, say, a huge outdoor opera like this. You know, just the availability of it, just and it brought a lot of international attention to to it as well. So there were people, people came for opening night from as far away as Denmark and um, Holland. People knew about Peterborough as a consequence of this show. I think most of the people came from far away. I don't think, uh, like the, Peter, the Peterborough intelligentsia came, but... Uh, I didn't see too many normal bar. I didn't see anybody from the Red Dog there, I'll tell you that. The ticket office was made up of two eyeballs, the left eye and the right eye. My husband was one of the eyes, <laughs> and, you know, they were giving out tickets. So people were, I think, quite puzzled and surprised and delighted, you know. And I know that Rob Winslow was an essential part of the, the, the play. Maybe, I don't. I can't speak for him, but I know that his love of the outdoors and working on a farm eventually manifested itself in his founding of Fourth Line Theatre. Um, and a lot of the people who were involved in the great show landed up working at Fourth Line as well. For me, like I said, it kind of inspired me to think I could do something. You could do something large scale outdoors based on on, on people from the community being involved. And I'm sure it had an impact on me as an artist. Um, I would imagine people that performed in it who were from Peterborough in the area would, would have been inspired to, to carry on or maybe they make connections that carried them on. As far as that kind of a play being done in Peterborough, I don't think there's been anything like it since. It was full of circus, but it was a dark circus. It was a, Circus of the Irrational, but it, it still was circus. It was imagistic, and and you had this experience. You, you know, you really had to go with it. You had to just kind of let your rational mind go and just experience it. But um, but the people were in your face, okay? So the actors were in your face. They weren't like, 
oh, you're a nice audience member. They, they were challenging the audience. They were yelling at the audience. They were screaming at the audience. They were eventually driving the audience out. So it was almost like an anti-audience experience. experimenting with shows under the uh, Hunter Street Bridge because it's acoustically wonderful there and you can play acoustically and people can hear you and uh, I would say that would be one of the things Murray has passed down to us to uh, be careful about where you put your show on or try to put your show on in a place where it has the maximum sonic effect it's sort of like where the alley waltz came from then and all those sort of things that happened here in Peterborough. Like outdoor stuff. You think that was inspired by Murray? Yeah, yes, yes, you could say so. I mean, it's uh, unexpected and it's in an unusual place. That would be what Murray gave to us. The sense that we could do this stuff. It showed us possibilities that we didn't know existed, that we could go beyond certain things and uh, the idea of performing or of bringing music um, into it, into an outdoor setting and having it work on us, you know, the itinerant audience as it wandered around. I mean, people still talk about it in town, you know, and... Uh, what do they say usually? About it. You remember that weird show? Yeah, that's what they usually talk about is the weird show. Just just one quick note about the ephemerality. That was really important to him. He, he, he felt that that was crucial to his work, that it was something surrounding people who came to see slash hear it, and then it was a memory. I don't really mind that it's, that it's ephemeral because it lives then in people's memories and in people's stories, which is really what theater and film and everything's about. It's about stories, storytelling, whether it's Asian cultures or, or Greek cultures or Western, like it's, it really comes down to the story as it's passed on. And so we're part of this long, long tradition of arts and memory and it's okay, but it's, but you, it is kind of frustrating that you can't, like you said, you can't go back and experience it. Like you can't go back in your own life and experience it again. You can, you can think you can, but, but you get, you get close with stories, I guess, with memory and reminiscence. You get sort of close. I guess the local story is that once upon a time, there was that show, that crazy show that was called, the greatest show. Ladies and gentlemen, 
greatest show. And you were part of it. Yeah, I was I, I was part of it and I'm I'm happy that I was. Schaefer could open up our eyes and our ears in ways that I don't know anyone else has been able to, you know, he's really quite astonishing. And he, I think of him in the present tense because he's with me, you know. Um, I hear music differently, I hear natural sounds differently, um, I think of my identity differently. Did you bond like musicians that way? Like you understood each other as like... Oh, I adored him. It's, it's still hard to talk about Murray right now. I, I think you appreciate that. I remember them celebrating his 60th birthday out here when they did the, the uh, Enchanted Forest. I remember the cast members all dancing around him in a circle on one of our hills on the farm. So he was a, he was a tough character in some ways and, and, uh, could put people off, but he, he was beloved as well by artists. He really was because if someone creates something that, that daring, um, people are going to, going to love that kind of stuff. You know? Where do you think that comes from that, that daring or the imagination and those characters and those situations? Where it comes from in him, in Murray Schaefer. I mean, he was obviously very accomplished and, 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 and knew tons about music and enough to know that then he could change what was accepted and push at the edges of that. And uh, yeah, kind of divine spark. He was one of those, uh, one of those, I couldn't explain it. He seemed very humble to me in a way. He seemed very much a person serving this thing. He wanted his stuff to happen, but we all want our stuff to happen. Does that mean we're egomaniacs that we want our stuff to happen and we push others to make it happen with us and for us? I don't think it necessarily means we're egomaniacs. I think we might, or there might be an argument that there's something being served. That if a person believes strongly enough in some some artistic venture that that it should happen, that it's not complete delusion and 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 tyranny. It's actually serving something in, that's worthy and beautiful. But no, I think it was a, it was a mensch. I think he was. In, in the Globe and Mail, which I cut out the obituary, just the expression on his face in that photograph, I don't know what production it's from, but that's him. That's him. Like, let's do it. We can do this, you know? So yeah, thanks for listening to today's episode. Uh, it was hosted by me, Aisha Barmania, and produced by L.A. Alfonso. And thanks so much to the folks who uh, talked to L.A. for this show. Bill Kimball, Gerard and Diana Smith, B. Quarry, Robert Winslow, and Hank Fisher. Uh, this podcast is a Peterborough Currents production. We're a local news outlet doing long-form and in-depth reporting on the community. We aim to produce news that it connects you to the community and helps you understand the bigger picture. Our ability to do this work depends on audience members supporting us financially. So if you find our work useful, please support us. Head to peterborocurrents.ca support us to sign up for a monthly or one-time donation. 
That's all for today. Thank you so much for listening and bye for now.